0: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Insight is Capital. I'm your host, Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. ESG has gathered a lot of steam as an essential and strategic investment component for both returns with long-term positive fundamentals and risk management. Around roughly 1,400 studies have found a positive relationship between ESG scores on one hand and financial returns on the other, whether measured by equity returns or profitability or valuation multiples. Another factor is the cost of capital. Evidence suggests that a better ESG score translates to about a 10% lower cost of capital as the risks that affect your business in terms of its ability to operate are reduced if you have a strong ESG proposition. For these reasons, publicly traded companies that are actively implementing ESG in their operations are expected to be granted a valuation and risk premium as a result of ESG goodwill versus those companies doing less. Joining us to talk about how TD Asset Management approaches ESG are Samantha McDonald, Vice President of ESG Research and Engagement at TD Asset Management, and Jonathan Needham, Vice President and Director, Lead of ETF Distribution at TD Asset Management. This is the Insight is Capital podcast.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice.
0: Samantha, Jonathan, welcome to the show. It's great to have you.
1: Hi there.
0: Thanks, Pierre. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. To kick things off, uh, please tell us about the arcs of your careers and your roles at TD Asset Management.
1: Uh, I'm happy to go first. Um, So I joined uh, TDAM a a little over a year ago. uh, And I'm a member, as you mentioned, Pierre, of our growing ESG research and engagement team. Uh, My focus on the team is to lead our stewardship efforts, so engagement and proxy voting. Uh, And I'm happy to get into more of that uh, in in a bit more detail later. Um, But prior to joining TDAM, I spent almost 12 years um, at a leading global ESG research uh, and data analytics firm. I wore a number of uh, different hats over my time there, as one does, uh, in a business that's fast evolving. So I was an ESG analyst. I did business development, relationship manager, operations. Kind of, you name it. Um, So, you know, I've been in the ESG space for quite some time, uh, and it's really been an exciting um, place to be over the past few years, especially as the ESG investment ecosystem has, you know, sort of exploded. Um, So, you know, from a personal perspective, you know, it's been great to see how far the industry has come, and I'm I'm really looking forward to where it's yet to go.
2: Thanks, Pierre, and again, uh, great, great to be here. Um, So, I I lead up the uh, ETF distribution efforts here at TD Asset Management. So, I I lead a team of ETF specialists. I work very closely with our national accounts team. So head offices across Canada, uh, in addition to our, uh, our, our wholesaling team uh, across Canada that supports the advisor community. So uh, I joined TD just over two years ago. It, it, it's been a great, uh, great team and a, and a great firm, uh, and certainly a lot of growth on the ETF side of the business, um, which I'm here to lead. So very, very thankful for that. Uh, prior to that, you know, been in the business for, for over a couple of decades, you can, you can tell by the gray hair, <laughs> um, through various roles and, and various asset management firms. So I, I've been on the FinTech side of the equation, Uh, I used to head up marketing uh, as well as head up distribution for one of the largest uh, asset managers globally. Um, And, you know, prior to that, I spent the majority of my career supporting and working with the advisor community uh, across Canada. And I'm still a very, very strong believer uh, in the value of advice. Uh, And I think even more so today um, with with the type of volatility we're seeing in the market. And I I would say even more so as a result of of investors looking to, you know, vote alongside their values, uh, vote with their investment dollars, and certainly need the guidance of an advisor to help. Them determine what are the appropriate solutions
0: uh, for them to help them reach their goals and still align with their values. Well, it's great to have you both. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. It's it's fair to say that ESG and sustainable investing is at the top of investors' minds. And a great place for us to start would be for you to share your perspective of what sustainable investing is within your firm's mandate. Samantha, can you talk about TDM's engagement process and how that's a part of defining your approach to the issues of ESG?
1: Maybe to take a step back at uh, the first part of your question here around ESG investing and, and uh, what that means, I think uh, it actually can mean a number of different things to different people. It really depends on your investment objectives. Uh, and, you know, for us, we view it uh, as a spectrum of different goals, which are unique to each investor. So some investors may want to invest aligned with certain ethical or political beliefs. You know, I don't want to invest in companies that produce controversial weapons or tobacco products, for example. Um, right. You know, some investors may be first focused on impact, you know, wanting to invest with the explicit goal to address um, or solve environmental or social problems, which may also have a financial return. Um, but at the the TDAM, uh, you know, at the firm level, you know, our primary focus is what we call our ESG integration. Uh, and this is probably the fastest growing space when it comes to ESG investing. And so this is the systematic incorporation of material or financially relevant environmental, social or governance factors uh, into the investment process. So in investment analysis and investment decision making. Uh, and here we do that across our asset classes. Um, we have a dedicated ESG team uh, as i'm I'm part of, um, and we ourselves are integrated in the investment group. You know we report into the CIO, um, you know who ultimately has oversight over our ESG strategy. You know he's part of our key decision making committees, uh, including our ESG committee and our, our proxy voting subcommittee. And so I think that's actually an important place to start. Uh, an important point to make about our governance structure when it comes to ESG. So, you know, we're not siloed from the investment process. It's it's quite the opposite. Now, in terms of your the second part of your question around um, uh, ESG engagement and where that actually fits in, uh, you know, and engagement uh, and more broadly stewardship is a really key part of our overall uh, ESG integration framework. So on the one side of the framework, you know, with supporting guidance from the ESG team, our analysts uh, and our PMs are considering ESG issues in their investment process, from active equity uh, and fixed income teams to the quant teams to their alternatives group. Um, But our stewardship efforts really, um, you know, they're equally as important. Um, Perhaps I might even venture to say, uh, you know, the core uh, or the centralizing aspect of our ESG strategy. So stewardship, uh, engagements, and proxy voting, um, you know, is defined as investors Using their influence over investees uh, and other stakeholders to maximize overall long-term value, um, and I think especially for our uh, passive funds uh, engagement uh, and you know proxy voting too for passive equity is how we're able to express our ESG integration there. You know there isn't an active process of stock picking for those mandates, um, and we engage our portfolio companies in many different ways uh, and via you know various channels um, from an, a direct engagement perspective. Um, <clears throat> you know, we've developed an annual focus list approach. So this is where we're targeting companies where performance may be lagging, but there is opportunity for uh, meaningful improvement over time. Um, Our our focus list uh, approach has evolved from last year and will continue to evolve. But in 2022, we um, have four specific focus categories. Um, Overall ESG, poor performance, uh, climate change, um, uh, human capital and human rights. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't engage on other topics. Uh, You know, we definitely engage companies on other issues, uh, other relevant issues, and of course, beyond our specific focus list companies. But, you know, having this defined set of companies to do deep engagements engagements with, you know, we believe that, um, you know, it's best practice when it comes to achieving positive outcomes. Uh, And all of this complements um, our other collaborative engagement efforts with other major investors through organizations like CCGG uh, or Canadian Coalition for Good Governance. Sorry, a lot of acronyms. Uh, Climate Action One Hundred Plus, okay. uh, Climate Engagement Canada, and and CDP.
0: Samantha, can you describe a good example or or uh, your favorite example of shareholder engagement and stewardship that, that um, really st- stuck with you?
1: I don't think I could pick just one. I think we've actually done quite a a bit of work uh, over the past year, in particular. Um, you know, since I, I joined uh, into enhancing our engagement program. Um, in in general, you know, these engagements are are not meant to be combative. Uh, you know, they're they're long term. Um, uh, collaborative uh, uh, relationships, multi-year engagement. So we've built a lot of relationships with our our portfolio companies. Um, You know, there's an ongoing feedback loop, you know, where we share our our principles and our expectations. um, And, and, you know, it's a two-way dialogue. So uh, I think a lot of, we've had a number of conversations with companies uh, over the past year um, that have been, um, I would say, you know, we already can see some progress. And I would say Uh, without naming names, um, you know, I think the companies that uh, are actually starting out on their ESG journeys, you know, we've seen already uh, very quickly um, our own impact. Um, You know, these are companies that have limited uh, disclosures, you know, they're kind of sort of, you know, uh, in the first stages of navigating the ESG reporting, uh, you know, expectations, um, you know, the regulatory frameworks that that are requiring all, all this different data. And I think it's been really helpful for us uh, or for them, sorry, to speak to us as our, their their shareholders um, uh, and provide that feedback. And so, you know, we've provided feedback on, um, you know, good tar- what are best practices when it comes to, you know, setting diversity targets or environmental goals and so on and so forth. So for me, those are, are kind of low hanging fruit in terms of impact and those have, have stuck. And I, I do feel like, you know, those are going to be relationships that we carry on uh, for quite some time. Um, I, I think the other uh, ones that that have really um, kind of moved the needle are our uh, investor collaborative engagements. So Climate Action 100 Plus, for example, and there's the new Climate Engagement Canada that we're involved in. Um, there's really something about the collective voice, you know, that raises mistakes and, and pressures, you know, if you will, on companies. And so we've had some success uh, with a company, a number of companies there where, you know, they may not have been, um, you know, maybe as responsive as we had hoped in the beginning. But over time and, and over multiple conversations, you know, we've been able to see some impact. So I would say, you know, those are kind of the areas that I think um, have stuck with me, at least over the past past year, as we've, we've built this program out. Great
0: to hear that it's a very gradualistic approach as opposed to, uh, a, you know, and sort of if-then-else approach. It's not, it's not, it's, you know, so you're, you're taking, you're allowing for a longer time span for companies to evolve into this into this approach to uh, operations Jonathan in in uh, your experience what is that key aha moment advisors are having in terms of realizing how they can integrate the ESG values of their clients into their model portfolios painlessly
2: I, I think there's a few aha moments if you will I but one that stands out for me in particular is, is really the you know the, the, the return stream right so the aha moment for most advisors are hey I'm, I'm not voting alongside my values or my client's values at the expense of returns. And so for them, it's a matter of, can I, you know, um, align, um, my clients and my, my value system, uh, in the construct of a portfolio in order to help my clients achieve their goals, uh, while not sacrificing returns. And I think that truly has been the aha moment when I can show uh, my advisor community that, you know, ESG is really putting on a risk lens uh, and you are getting that kind of, uh, you know, uh, risk reduction uh, and that premium valuation for cl- for companies that are doing the right things. And so as soon as advisors understand that they can use ESG strategies, particularly, you know, the beta building blocks that we've launched here at TD Asset Management in the form of our ETFs that are index-based, uh, that they can be beta replacements. So they can still align Uh, their financial plans uh, alongside their dispersion of return expectations vis-a-vis their capital markets model. Uh, And that truly has been the aha. So it's a little bit of, yeah, it's risk reduction. Yes, we're seeing the trend and the premiums that uh, investors and large investors like TD um, are putting on companies that are doing right um, by by many standards. Um, But really what really holds true to them uh, is that they can hold these strategies, not sacrifice returns, and still um, have reasonable expectations of those dispersion returns uh, for doing the financial planning.
0: And how can investors think of this in terms of alignment with their personal values?
2: Samantha covered it really nicely earlier, and you know, that's the role of the advisor is to help that investor uh, determine what solution is appropriate, you know, depending on whether they're, they're, you know, what type of values-based or impact-based strategy they're looking for. Now, in the case of, uh, you know, the the, the five ETFs uh, that I I support and help distribute here for TD Asset Management, um, you know, those are a little bit um, more broad-based strategies. So, like I said previously, um, you know, when you can get Canadian, U.S. and international equity exposure uh, that looks and feels uh, a lot like the return of the underlying benchmark or the broad-based benchmark, I think that gives the the comfort level um, from the advisor uh, in terms of the predictability of returns. And of course, it gives the investor that comfort that they are uh, you know, screening for ESG companies, some controversial companies that are removed as a result of controversial scores, if you will. Um, they're getting access to a diversified uh, basket of securities uh, that have some of the lowest ESG scores. So lower is better uh, in the case of the right. Morningstar Sustainalytics rankings. And so I think that's really, really key. Um, for our, our advisor and our investor community that they know they're, they're getting rid of controversial companies. Uh, they're, they're, they're removing certain controversials uh, like tobacco, firearms, and gambling. Uh, so some of those negative screens, uh, but more, inc- more importantly, uh, they're weighting their portfolio um, and the underlying securities of that portfolio uh, greater to companies that have a lower ESG score. And I think that's been a sense of comfort uh, in predictability of return streams, but also, uh, you know, it doesn't hurt that ESG is in the title. Uh, and then when they do a little bit of a due diligence on what the screening methodology is, they feel very comfortable um, with the outcome and the output of, of the portfolios.
0: So there's this widespread notion among investors that investing a la ESG means having to make binary decisions about investing in things like energy, mining, and commodities producers that are currently partaking in the inflation-fueled bull uh, that's been unfolding but that's just not true, is it? We don't think so. I mean, and
2: Samantha can elaborate, but certainly, yeah. you know, one of the benefits of the ETFs that we offer at TMEC, I uh, like to talk in tickers for Canadian exposure, uh, TMEU for U.S. exposure, and TMEI uh, for international equity exposure. And we'll talk about the fixed income later. Um, really, the, the, the benefit of these is they're they're fairly sector neutral. Um, so plus or minus 2% relative to the broad-based uh, markets. And so what's really important there, particularly in an environment like this where, where clients are obviously are trying to hedge against inflation, um, may not want uh, necessarily uh, fossil fuels, but if they didn't have them, particularly this year, exposure to those energy companies, uh, their returns would be significantly lagging. Right. So this is kind of the best of both worlds, if you will. You, you're getting exposure uh, relatively neutral relative to the benchmark, uh, but you're only getting those companies that we're engaging with. And in this case, uh, Morningstar and Sustainalytics uh, are, are ranking based on uh, a lot of uh, you know in metrics that Samantha talked about. Uh, that are included in the portfolio. So, uh, of course, there are going to be those uh, individual investors that may not want the fossil fuel exposure. And, of course, we do have uh, other solutions from, from from TD Asset Management here to help solve uh, for that as well uh, that are also going to give them uh, exposure uh, to companies that are best in breed from an ESG perspective uh, and not in the fossil fuel space. And so, you know, there's, there's multiple solutions. And hence, again, why I think the value of advice uh, and that guidance, um, because in that case, you know, in a, in a, in a you know, Market environment, like we're seeing today, uh, those strategies which have held up quite well, uh, would still be lagging somewhat relative to a strategy that does have some fossil fuel exposure uh, in it.
0: What are some of the recent trends and most unique meaningful opportunities that are happening in ESG? I like to look at industry trends from from an assets and a, and a, an asset gathering perspective,
2: right because that's truly indicative of uh, how investors, you know institutional advisors and retail are feeling about their uh, about their money and about their values and certainly, Um, you know, we've seen significant adoption of ESG strategies. We've seen, you know, a proliferation of product uh, in the marketplace to help solve uh, for investors, uh, allow them to obviously solve for problems that they have, uh, obviously uh, help them achieve their financial goals, um, but obviously uh, to allow them to vote alongside their, their value system. And so, a significant amount of product growth, significant amount of asset growth. Uh, we've certainly seen you know, uh, a massive adoption on the institutional side of the equation. Uh, and that tends to then follow suit to the advisor and the end investor. And in many cases, it's been uh, the end investor demanding and requesting it. Uh, in fact, you know, as I mentioned, you know, working with advisors for uh, the last couple of decades, I'm really encouraging them uh, to broach, to kind of have that conversation with their, with their investors because um, most of the studies that we've done and third-party studies that we've read have shown a significant amount of investors are looking to uh, adopt and integrate ESG strategies, um, but a significant number of advisors have not spoken to their clients about it. And so there's a bit of a gap. Yeah. Uh, and that trend I am seeing is, is starting to close, um, particularly uh, as investors uh, start to, I'll say, pay more attention to their portfolios uh, and what they're holding and why they're holding it. And of course they get pressure from their, their children and their grandchildren uh, to do so. Uh, and certainly that's a, a, a trend I'm seeing in addition to the significant uh, transfer of wealth that's happening, right? From the older generation to the younger generation. And uh, as a result of that, uh, you know, advisors are having to, in some cases, listen to their clients' uh, goals and values of trying to integrate ESG. And so I think there's gonna be a lot more of that uh, pull from the end investor, Um, but for the most part, I'm seeing advisors getting ahead of that uh, as they always have done and, and be very educated uh, on what exposure they can get for their clients. That's going to still align with their financial goals.
0: Absolutely. I, th- I think for advisors, the key is, um, ha- having made the time to get to know exactly what, what ESG actually means. Very interesting, Jonathan, Samantha. Thank you. I, I um, I want to change gears and, uh, talk about the three different strategies, the three different equity strategies within, um, TD asset management. Um, Let's start with the Canadian strategy. You mentioned TMEC, uh, TMEC already, which tracks the TD Morningstar ESG Canada Equity Index. Um, How are you addressing the Canadian market in TMEC, which is rich in energy and commodities, which are potentially seen as negative from an ESG perspective?
2: The the strategies have been adopted and successful, particularly for those that are looking for broad-based beta replacement and so the way in which these strategies are designed is like i said earlier is you know they're going to be relatively sector neutral plus or minus 2% and so you are going to get that that energy exposure um, but of course you're getting you know the names that are best in breed in terms of uh, what they're doing and how they're working with their communities and how they you know their their executive team is, is diverse in nature and uh, how they're addressing uh, decarbonization and so on and so forth and so um, you know a couple examples you know yes we own some Suncor and yes we own tc energy uh, and those have been great uh, companies longer term and as As uh, as Samantha mentioned, it's really important, uh, I think, and and we think here at TD Asset Management, to be at the table, um, to have investment dollars with firms like that uh, to help them uh, move along the path of of doing good, if you will, and continue to do better. And so not only are you getting that exposure within TMEC, which obviously has has helped clients significantly this year relative to a lot of other uh, strategies, um, but you're making sure that you're getting the energy names that are, are best in breed, if you will, and are moving in the right direction. Um, and so I think that's that's really, really important um, for the advisor community. It allows them to understand what they're getting. Um, you get that more kind of predictable uh, rate of return, particularly relative to the, the benchmarks that clients track uh, when they look at the paper, S&P TSX composite, right. S&P 500, so on and so forth. And so I think that's, that's uh, why we built that strategy the way in which we did. The other thing, you know, I think that's important to to address is and to highlight is, you know, we did it in an extremely cost effective way, you know, 10 basis points. And so a very low cost hurdle for investors to align their values, um, you know, with our investment strategy. Um, we also happen to structure it in such a way where you're getting two thirds of the market by market capitalization. So it really is truly, um, you know, going to act a lot like the broad based benchmark, obviously differences um, as a result of the underlying holdings and over different periods of time, but you know, over a longer period of time, um, you can expect very similar risk-adjusted returns, slightly better, particularly from a risk lens. And obviously we have, you know, index data to support that. Um, but that, that to me has been really important. Uh, these also, these ETFs, both the Canadian one you mentioned uh, and our U.S. and international exposure ETFs um, have, have been ranked, you know, five-star, uh, you know, globe ranking, uh, which only 10% of funds and ETFs in Canada can say that. Uh, we also got uh, recently awarded a Corporate Knights Award um again just reinforcing that uh, these strategies have done what they're meant to do um in terms of getting the exposure that we know that Canadians uh, want um while also giving them exposure we know they need um and so i think that's uh how, how we built that uh, that that complex if you will of of uh, ETFs in partnership with Morningstar Analytics.
0: tracking error is a big deal when when you're building a portfolio and if you you know if you if you advised your client to do something uh you know in in lieu of their values, and then it wasn't working in terms of the line items in their portfolio. Uh, then you know you'd be faced with that dilemma, and that's that that seems to be an issue that it, I think a lot of advisors typically are are concerned about. Uh, you know, in any sort of forward-looking investment planning exercise, I, I would also add that the the wide acceptance of ESG is also getting credit now with causing unintended consequences, notably. The problem of demand for decarbonization outstripping the supply of decarbonization. Um, some some folks would say this is ironic. This has led to a deeply underinvested energy sector, uh, shortages, for example, over the last decade. And so, it's 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 great to find out that energy companies are you know not only you know were they caught on the back foot uh, with this current inflationary environment that we're in. Uh, in terms of of being able to bring supply forward, uh, but it's great to see also that they are among some of the biggest uh, reformers in the context of vsG as well that they're actually making significant efforts, and that is why they they are included in these sustainability rankings Samantha, what are some circumstances that would lead you to consider divesting a holding like what what would it come to in order for you to make a decision like that
1: divestment is definitely a buzzword these days i think particularly around you know that when it comes to the fossil fuel industry there's a lot of talk about divestment uh, for tnam in general you know our emphasis really is on engagement over divestment divestment for us really is a last resort i think especially if you think about it uh when it comes to pursuing you know real world outcomes um you know uh, I think you know the key point is is for us is there are a lot of unintended consequences when it comes to to, to divesting. You know, for example, if you know we divest our investments or you know we're shifting assets into um, other uh, um, other hands. You know, uh, I think there's been trends of, of assets moving into private hands where there may be lower scrutiny of, of ESG performance or lower ESG standards, and you know we as investors end up losing um, our influence or our seat at the table. Uh, when it comes to these companies and so for us it's much more productive i think again if you're thinking about real world outcomes um to 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 uh, maintain our ownership in these companies so that we can have those that that influence and we can have those discussions um you know towards um you know when it comes to fossil fuel industry and climate change towards a just transition um uh, to a lower our carbon economy um uh, i think you know that being said, it uh, doesn't mean that divestment um, doesn't have a place, um, I think, in an active ownership strategy and a comprehensive stewardship strategy. Uh, engagement isn't a perfect science, uh, you know, and so if engagement efforts are not productive and, you know, we're not seeing progress, I think there are, um, you know, some ex- uh, escalation methods that we could explore, which might include divesting, it might uh, include reducing positions in companies. Um, it could also mean, you know, things like voting against board directors. But I think any escalation process that, you know, we employ, um, you know, that decision would require thoughtful and, and thorough uh, consideration by TM and all relevant, uh, you know, internal stakeholders. So, you know, again, I- engagement is the preference. Divestment is the last resort. Um, but, but you know, I think it, it could have a place um, in the conversation uh, with thoughtful consideration um, taking place. Thank you.
0: What do you see from your side of things? Uh, are some of the unforeseen or unintended consequences and opportunities that ESG has been a catalyst for or provoked?
1: Uh, I think, like I said, the the unintended consequences and, and why, you know, I, I, again, to, to be maybe a bit repetitive, but, but hit the nail on the head a little bit here, um, is around, uh, uh, um, you know, the divestment, the slew of divestments that we're seeing. Uh, you know, every headline these days seems to show an investment manager divesting out of uh, you, you know, energy companies or the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, for us, we don't want to have that, you know, uh, uh, that, that knee-jerk reaction. And and so, uh, um, you know, because you know, we have Finzing, and then I apologize, I don't have any the stats in front of me, but my colleague uh, had just shared some, but how many assets have transferred into private hands uh, where, you know, again, we don't have a seat at the table, you know, a, a lot less scrutiny on ESG performance and ESG standards. So I think that's a big concern. Um, I think the other opportunity, maybe you know, an opportunity angle here for us at least is, you know, I talked about engagement and engagement with companies, but I think that's it can't stop there because companies themselves um, can only, I think, do so much, right? They have to operate in, uh, you know, they have to have an uh, an environment that is conducive or regulatory and policy environment that is conducive to 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 a transition, and so for for TM. You know, one of the things that we have taken on more of and we plan to do more of this is to actually engage the policymakers. You know, an issue like climate change is a systemic one. You know, it involves all stakeholders, or it needs all stakeholders at the table, uh, fossil fuel companies, investors, um, you know, civil society, as well as, you know, policymakers. And so, you know, we've been doing some engagement, um, uh, you know, with with policymakers, with the regulatory bodies, as well to kind of push um, that that regulate, regulatory uh, environment forward and, and to progress, and so not just on climate change, but things like I and mean, we talked a lot about, you know, climate change, but you know, things like uh, you know diversity, uh, diversity, inclusion, and expectations around the S. Uh, uh, um, you know, I think that's that's also really important to the ESG conversation, and so you know, I think there's a, there is a lot of opportunity for investors to play a bigger role in engaging the policy side.
2: The only thing I think I would echo is that you're hearing a lot about you know engagement first divestment. Um, the importance of having a seat at the table. Um, you know, we're we're here as fiduciaries to help influence the right actions, right? And so we want to hold these companies accountable um, to doing the type of transitions that we know is important uh, for the better good of society, if you will. And I think that's you know, the, I'll say a lot of the times the missing link for that end and and client and end investor, um, you know, particularly when it comes to to owning uh, companies that are you know in the fossil fuel business, is we need to be there in order to make sure we have that voice. Uh, and we can, you know, engage them um, vis-a-vis our voting power, right. right? Particularly at the size of scale that uh, a firm like TD Asset Management is with over 400 billion in AUM, right? And so I think that's that's really important. Uh, and a lot of these uh, fossil fuel companies are, are leading in terms of that energy transition. Um, and I think you know, some of them are going to be some of the, the clean energy companies yep. of the future uh, because they have those, uh, you know, they have the resources in terms of human capital. Um, they, you know, they have the scientists on staff. Uh, they're very familiar with working with the type of technology, and so. Uh, I think that, to me, is really the importance of what we're doing here at TD Asset Management, taking a very active Mm -hmm. uh, voice and an active role in how these companies, uh, uh, you know, embrace and transition over time.
1: They're definitely some of the biggest allocators to low-carbon solutions. And so there's a lot of opportunity, uh, I think, there as well, like business opportunities for them. And so, you know, again, you know, we want to be part of that conversation.
0: And the key, the key, I think, from what you both said, is that it's not a black and white approach. It's very moderated. It's a very, it's taking a moderate stance and a gradual approach to ESG rather than than some of the more extremist views that have maybe shaped perceptions out there of of what ESG is. So a, a more gradual approach actually allows for more time for more evolution of companies uh, into this process. I'm curious to know in your international ESG strategy. Um, I believe it's similar to the other methodologies or rules that that apply to uh, TMAC and TMEU, um, the the U.S. mandate, which we'll get to in a second. But I'm curious to know because in the international space, you have a uh, uh, you have multinational companies that are that are working, uh, you know, in uh, let's say as many as hundreds of countries, and and then we have this geopolitical thing that's happening right now uh, with the war in the Ukraine and 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 sanctions. How do you navigate? How does the uh, sustainability rankings in the Morningstar Index? Um, how does it? How does it navigate the geopolitical landscape, and and uh, you know all the potential pitfalls that that has created uh, more recently?
2: The good news is I could tell you the approach and the strategy because this rules space, like a back of the napkin type of approach, and I'll do that um, <laughs> very briefly. Um, but the reality is behind the scenes, there's a lot going on. Um, you know, the type of research and due diligence that Morningstar has done, um, you know, th- through their acquisition, uh, partnership acquisition of Sustainalytics is there's a lot going on. I mean, there's over 80,000 publications on a daily basis that they are reading. You know, the robots are reading and screening uh, in order to make sure, you know, if, if some controversial uh, event happens for a company, they're catching it in real time. And obviously reassessing the exposure within the portfolio when it gets reconstituted and rebalanced on a quarterly basis. But the back of the napkin kind of approach, if you will, is we take the entire universe of stocks, um, you know, call it the, the Morning Star Broad Index for the MSCI, uh, EFI Index, as an example. Uh, we then uh, essentially do some negative screens. So any company that has a controversial score of, of four or five, so uh, greater than three, if you will, uh, is removed from the portfolio. Uh, we then screen to remove tobacco, gambling and firearm companies. So there's that negative screens uh, and then we're scoring and ranking. or Morningstar Sustainalytics is scoring and ranking uh, the remaining companies, and then weighting uh, according uh, to their uh, their scores. And so, the lower the scores, the, the greater the weighting. And so, long story short, the, the the outputs you know, 360 plus holdings. So you know, a very large number of small bets, which is what you're uh, expecting to get when you're buying a, a broad index-based solution. Uh, it is managed to track very tight tracking error relative to that index with the in-house expertise that we have at TD Asset Management, one of the few. Uh, asset managers uh, that have and can say that we do that here in the Canadian market right. uh, for Canadians, by Canadians, if you will. And so very tight tracking error, uh, multi-decade history of, of index expertise. Um, and then, you know, if I were to give you the, you know, the ESG score for those who really track Morningstar Sustainalytics, uh, right now it's running at like 19.43. And so um, your outcome is essentially uh, a very attractive uh, ESG score, uh, a very diversified portfolio that is five globe sustainable rating, Um, And it's a medium risk uh, because of its broad diversification. So uh, I don't know if it's getting right to your question as to how we navigate this environment. I think the reality is um, more of our active strategies, our active mutual funds that are active share um, would certainly be uh, doing uh, taking a different approach versus more of a rules-based approach. But in the ETFs, uh, all three, both the Canadian uh, or all three, the Canadian, U.S. and uh, international uh, equity strategies are designed in the same way in order to get about – Two thirds of the market cap by market capitalization.
0: What I was curious about was companies, for example, that are caught in the crossfire between Russia, for example, and the West.
2: Yeah, I think I mean that that again comes to the monitoring of, of the third-party provider to kind of look at, right. um, you know, what 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 impacts have you know this conflict had, and and how in real time are they, and and uh, you know what changes are we going to make and reconstitute as a result of that. Uh, the the beautiful thing uh, for any end investor that's also uh, Curious about any specific company? Um, you can go right on to the Morningstar Sustainable Analytics webpage and type in a ticker uh, anywhere in the globe. You know any stock ticker, uh, and you're going to get the, the the rating and the ranking. And so, uh, based on that ranking and rating, you'll be able to determine whether it's in the ETF. Uh, of course, the other beautiful thing about an ETF is it is fully transparent. Right, right? The, the the basket of securities is published on a daily basis, and so the end investor and or the advisor uh, can essentially look in real time uh, in what companies we hold and, and in what weight. Um, so I'll say it's somewhat dynamic, if you will, um, and obviously, you know, events like these have an impact and a pretty fast impact, um, but in an index solution like this, um, that's, you know, uh, very transparent in its methodology and very broad based in terms of exposure, uh, you're still getting fairly low turnover, uh, very much like you would in an index strategy, call it, you know, 10, 10% annual turnover. Uh, so, so, so very minimal change um, on a quarter by quarter basis
0: on the uh, TMEU, the US ESG strategy uh, how does it differ from the Canadian strategy and the international strategy aside from the obvious aside from the fact that it's US versus Canadian <laughs> or international are there any are there any uh, criteria that are added because the US is such a big market aside from the obvious no yeah. the
2: good news is the methodology is 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 transparent across the board um you know obviously the difference would be the, the output in terms of the number of securities right you're getting you know, 440 names um, you know, versus 360 plus names in international and 78, uh, call it core holdings uh, in the Canadian strategy. The distributions are the same across the board quarterly. Um, the fee structure is slightly different, as you yeah, would expect. Yeah. You know, it's 15 basis points uh, to get U.S. equity exposure. Um, but no, that's the the great thing about those three strategies is uh, if you know one, you you, you know all three, um, and you know um, from an advisor's perspective, you know that they are anchors uh, and building right. blocks uh, to a portfolio. And that's really what we're seeing today is a transition from. You know, traditionally holding you know the S and P 500 or an ETF that tracks the S and P 500, uh, advisors are starting to transition uh, from that you know well-known broad-based index strategy that doesn't do ESG screens uh, to a TM EU, which is you know very similar in terms of its cost structure, very similar in terms of its uh, uh, you know return stream profile. It's truly a, a pure beta replacement, and uh, in market conditions like this, uh, where we've finally seen a fairly significant pullback, um, investors are starting to lock in, in some cases, those losses, um, depending on the time period of which they've held broad-based strategies uh, and, and, and moving away from broad-based um, index strategies, that track markets that they're familiar with, um, to getting familiar with ESG. And I think that's one of the silver linings of, of a pullback in a market. Um, nobody likes to, to live through, through this, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think that allows uh, investors uh, of all types to reassess uh, what they own, why they own it, uh, obviously harvest some losses along the way while they can. And if they can realign their portfolio uh, to vote alongside their values at the same time, uh, I think that's a, a win-win. Um, and obviously they can then have very similar return expectations going right. forward uh, with, a, with a better risk lens on their portfolio. The, the role of fixed income in a portfolio, particularly in this environment, um, you know, we've, this has been the first time in, in multi-decades where clients have experienced negative returns on both the equity and the fixed income market. So not, not ideal. Um, But of course, the silver lining there is um, clients are no longer being punished as savers, right? You're now getting uh, fairly attractive coupons slash yields uh, by owning uh, fixed income, including high quality investment grade fixed income. And so um, first and foremost, I should let our listeners know uh, that we have two uh, fixed income uh, ESG uh, ETFs, uh, TMCC uh, and TMUC. So they track the TD Morningstar ESG Canada uh, corporate bond index. Uh, and TMUC tracks the TD Morningstar ESG U.S. Corporate Bond uh, Index. Long-winded <laughs> way of me okay. saying these are high-quality bonds um, meant to be kind of a balance to equity volatility, very similar to the equity strategies, the, the, the lowest cost in the marketplace at 15 to 20 basis points. Uh, there are also five-globe uh, sustainable rating. Um, they're also rebalanced quarterly. The main difference being that they capture about 50% of the market by market capitalization. And we do that because we want to make sure we own the highest quality and the most liquid bonds, uh, because this is an ETF structure, so you want to make sure you've got uh, extreme liquidity, and so I think, you know, A, I wanted to highlight that uh, all investors uh, should have, at least most, uh, if not all, should have some fixed income as a balance to the equity volatility, and particularly today where TD Asset Management's view is that uh, you should likely be adding to bonds in this environment. because you're getting a, attractive coupons, the, the damage has been done, if you will, um, and high quality bonds in particular. So uh, thanks for allowing me
0: to do that. <laughs> Excellent point. Um, so building blocks, maximum diversification, low tracking error or none. Are there any specific rules that, that you can highlight within the Morningstar ESG indices that, that uh, stick out for you that, that are important? From my
2: perspective, it's, it's really what happens behind the scenes. Um, and I won't bore you with all the details, no. but it is quite fun. <laughs> Um, when you start to look at, you know, why is this company included and why is that one not included? And, and you know, if something happens, how long are those companies held uh, accountable before they get reconstituted into the index? And, you know, I can, I can tell you it's a quite long period of time. Um, you know, Volkswagen comes to mind with their emission scandal, um, obviously still not a part of, of those strategies. And so I think, um, to me, I think the, the behind the scenes, the, the getting into the weeds is really what makes uh, the difference uh, of these types of strategies. Uh, What I can tell you too, Pierre, which I think is helpful probably for listeners is how we differ from our competitors. Um, You know, in the equity side, we track, uh, you know, about two thirds of the market by market capitalization where a lot of the other strategies are around 50%. Uh, So both are are sound, both are capturing broad markets. Um, But when you can capture more of that broad market exposure, uh, obviously your dispersion of returns relative to the benchmark are are going to be tighter uh, and more predictable. And I think that's really what differentiates us uh, relative to, uh, other index providers or other ETFs that track other index providers is the depth and research and knowledge behind the scenes that, Morningstar uh, Morningstar Analytics brings to the table. Uh, but obviously that exposure, uh, which is obviously going to be tighter relative to even a broad benchmark.
0: So with your betas, uh, I mean, in the, being in the advisor seat with the betas, the attitude towards position sizing can be position for position. Basically is where, where you would take your, your pure S&P 500 beta, for example, and substitute uh, some or part or all of it with the ESG index. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to feel and
2: look a whole lot like a a market cap-weighted strategy, obviously, with the variance being it's only going to include those companies that are best in breed when it comes to uh, their ESG rankings. So
0: So that's very interesting, having the ability to have these core building blocks at your disposal. Um, What additional research are you and your team doing to support the integrity of these indices, Samantha?
1: I think with these particular ones, you know, we don't add uh, a ton uh, directly to to them. Um, but I think a lot of the work that we do is in, you know, our due diligence process uh, in the research providers and providing feedback um, uh, to them in terms of the data that we're ingesting or the, 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 the groups that, uh, you know, we choose to partner with. And so our ESG team brings a lot of that expertise um you know a couple of us come from from the the esg rating space and so we know the data very well and uh and i think that that brings a level of expertise uh needed uh for to, to build out new esg infrastructure here uh including you know how we choose to partner with with um uh with, with various index providers
0: right
2: yeah i think i'll add to that here. i think you know samantha talked earlier about um how her team you know reports right into the cio right our chief investment officer and i think. Um, that that makes us stand out relative to our competitors um, and because that means essentially that not only are you getting you know that 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 ESG lens if you will that integration uh, on our index strategies which are run by our, our our expertise on our index team but you're also getting that with our quantitative uh, strategies our, our, our quant strategies our quant team you're getting that with our active strategies you're getting that with our uh, our real asset strategies uh, whether they're in fund etf or infrastructure uh, format and I think that's Uh, On the broad level, I think that really differentiate us uh, in the marketplace today. Um, And I can tell advisors and institutions uh, and and investors very comfortably that, you know, um, sure, I'd love you to buy my ESG ETF. And I think it's going to check a lot of boxes for you uh, for the following reasons. But the reality is you can buy any one of our strategies and be confident and comfortable uh, that Samantha and her team um, has been a part of the process in terms of the security selection uh, and the, uh, the engagement that we have with those companies that are held within the portfolios. And I think um, I think, you know, probably, and, and maybe I'm talking at a, uh, at a school here and Samantha will correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe five, 10 years from now, we won't really be talking about ESG and we won't need to have ESG labeled mm-hmm. strategies. They're all going to be uh, ESG. And I think that's where, uh, uh, you know, the expertise and the depth of our team, um, and I continue to see it growth, uh, grow, um, I, I think is, is really helping us stand out in the market and make sure that we're, we have a voice and a voice that uh, has influence.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think ESG investing, the term ESG investing may not exist, you know, in five, you know, 10, five years, maybe sooner. Who knows? It just becomes, you know, it just is investing.
0: Yeah, it'll just become part of our DNA. Another buzzword that's getting a lot of attention, gotten a lot of attention, gets a lot of attention in this space is greenwashing. So please share your perspective on, on what it is to you and why should advisors be concerned or aware with the implications? for for me green,
2: greenwashing is pretty simple it's it's pretending to care but not really caring yeah. um and i think that's really what 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 we're seeing in in many cases is you know a marketing spin that's unsubstantiated that's um, not accurate that's misleading um and so i think you know that's what it is to me and obviously you can you can hear that that's not happening here at Asset management but uh, i'll leave it to samantha to see if she's got a, a mm-hmm. more complex way of saying it but for me it says hey you're um... saying you care but you're not
1: yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's the uh, probably, you know, the, the simplest way to refer to it. And, you know, it, I could go on um, for, for quite some time and talking about, uh, you know, the concerns. there. And I don't just think it's around, you know, greenwashing. I, I know there's a lot of buzz because we're in the asset management or in the investment management space. There's a lot of buzz around greenwashing in this space uh, from like a product perspective and, you know, claims from investment managers around what they're doing in ESG. But I also think this is something to be highly cognizant of on the, the issuer side. Right you know, issuers and and their you know what they are are, are putting out there and the reporting disclosure, and it's up to teams like ourselves, you know, and we're doing our our research and our, our own due diligence as to how to sift through their own greenwashing as well and making sure that we understand the issues uh we understand you know the the things that are most material to the companies, and then we're kind of pinpointing those things to have deeper conversations um so you know I think greenwashing spans the ecosystem right? there's it's a concern for the whole ecosystem and and, you know, here at, at TDM, you know, uh, of course, you know, working in the ESG team, I know that we are actually doing quite a bit, uh, uh, you know, in the um, kind of the plumbing, if you will, uh, um, uh, the, the infrastructure really that underpins our ESG strategy. And so a lot of that work, you, know, you might not see in our external reporting. Um, but but it's taking shape, and so uh, you know I think that's important to highlight um, and, and understand. You know when you're looking at an asset manager, or you're looking for an investment manager. Uh, you know, knowing that they're 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 doing the real work um, uh, underneath. You know, flashy reports. Um, also on reporting, I think it's great. You know when you see these commitments and you know big numbers, but it's also the substance of the reporting, and that's something that we focused on ourselves. So. You know, we look at things like our proxy voting, you know, we issued our um, uh, recently, uh, I guess it's not so recent now, we're kind of mid-year. I can't believe how fast the year has gone by. But, you know, at the beginning of this year, we, we published our updated proxy voting guidelines. You know, I think that's really best practice when it comes to transparency about um, our position on a number of, of, you know, key governance and ENS um, issues. You know, not just for the issuers uh, that we are our shareholders in, but also for our clients as well. So, you know, they understand where we stand on things like, um, uh, diversity and inclusion on, you know, emerging climate issues, uh, human rights issues, indigenous rights and reconciliation issues, um, all of those things are pretty explicit in our proxy voting guidelines. So it's really not just about um, statements and uh, it's really about the substance of our reporting. And so that's something that, that we've really um, focused on uh, as we build out our, our library of, 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 you know, both content and um, uh, uh, reports for, for our clients.
0: Yeah, so in a nutshell, watching their feet, not their mouths. (laughs) Fascinating. You've got all the sayings. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Samantha, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time and your insight. And to those listening, thank you for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you.